Hello. Welcome to episode four of the Hate Crime Files, a podcast about crimes typically involving violence, motivated by prejudice, based on race, religion, sexual orientation, gender identity, or other grounds. This podcast covers disturbing events and may not be suitable for everyone. It is not recommended for young children. Listener discretion is advised. It was a Friday night on March 11th, 2005, when 29-year-old Jason Gage walked into Kings and Queens, a local gay bar in Waterloo, Iowa. George W. Bush was president, and Candy Shop by 50 Cent topped the charts, though that probably wasn't on the playlist at Kings and Queens that night. Across the Atlantic, Spain was observing a day of mourning commemorating the first anniversary of the 2004 Madrid train bombings that killed 193 people and left 2,050 injured. Former world champion chess player Garry Kasparov announced his retirement from professional competition. It's unlikely any of these things were on Jason Gage's mind when he entered the bar, though it's impossible to tell. Most likely, he walked into the bar uttering one of his favorite phrases, Hey, hey, or Jason's in the bar, which his friends would recall after his death. For that would be the night that Jason Gage was murdered. His friends remembered him as lively and outgoing, with a quick wit and a ready smile. He was the nicest guy in the world, said Carinza Jackson of LaPorte City. If someone was down, he'd make him laugh just to make him happy. Jason was probably just looking forward to meeting some friends and having a fun night out. But that's not how the night would end. Gage was originally from the small town of L1, Ohio, which would become famous in 2009 as the subject of Nick Redding's controversial book, Methland, The Death and Life of an American Small Town. At the time of the 2000 census, the population of L1 was just 6,692, down from a peak of 8,282 in 1960. Gage lived in Chicago, Illinois, and Milwaukee, Wisconsin, before moving to Waterloo, a city with about 10 times the population of his hometown. He moved into an apartment in the Russell Lampson building and got a job waiting tables in an Italian restaurant on the building's first floor. He also enrolled in the College of Hair Design and dreamed of styling and cutting hair in a big city like New York. At some point that evening, Gage ran into 23-year-old Joseph Lawrence, who had arrived at the bar separately from Gage. 
Lawrence had been born in Delaware and was removed from his parents due to severe abuse. He spent several years in foster care until he was adopted at the age of five. He moved to Maryland, New Jersey, and Ohio with his adoptive parents until he decided at the age of 16 that he didn't want to be adopted anymore and re-entered the foster care system. Lawrence also had a history of mental illness, for which he spent time in psychiatric hospitals and group homes. He had a history of intermittent rage disorder, which involved repeated sudden episodes of impulsive, aggressive, violent behavior or angry outbursts, reactions grossly out of proportion to the situation. Before moving to Waterloo in 2003 to live with his six months pregnant girlfriend, Elizabeth Hostetler, Lawrence lived in Farmington, New Mexico, where he was an oil worker. New Mexico court records show that he had a criminal record. In January 2003, Lawrence pleaded guilty to possession of one ounce of marijuana and served 30 days in the San Juan County Jail. Hostetler had introduced Lawrence to Gage, whom she'd met through a mutual acquaintance two years earlier. About a week before the murder, they were introduced. Gage and Lawrence met up at Kings and Queens at some point that evening. Witnesses saw them together at the bar. After the bar closed, the two headed to an after-hours party at the Times Lounge. At some point, they headed back to Gage's apartment two blocks away from the bar. Hostetler later said, that Gage told Lawrence he could wait for a ride at Gage's apartment. Lawrence called a friend of Hostetler's and said he needed a ride home from downtown because he, quote, didn't like the hospitality of the place and needed a ride or he was going to end up in jail. An investigator later received a call from a man who had been asked to give Lawrence a ride and said that Lawrence never showed up. He then said that he'd heard from Hostetler that Lawrence had beaten up Gage. Phone records show that in the early hours of March 12th, Lawrence sent several text messages to friends in Iowa and New Mexico. One of them read, I just killed a guy, I think. Another text message sent to Michael Bailey in Iowa read, You need to call me soon. In an exchange with Bailey, Lawrence wrote that some guy tried to hit on him real bad and described a fight that got out of hand, which seemed to indicate that Lawrence wasn't entirely sure that Gage was dead. Gage's friends grew concerned when they hadn't seen him for three days, and he failed to show up for work on Monday. 
they contacted the authorities, and police found Gage's body in his bed when they entered his apartment at 11 p.m. on March 14th. Gage had been bludgeoned with a glass bottle and stabbed in the neck with a shard of glass. Police soon visited Lawrence at the home he shared with Hostetler and asked him to come in for questioning as he was seen leaving a bar with Gage and seemed to be the last person to see Gage alive. In a statement videotaped at the Waterloo Police Station, Lawrence acknowledged hitting Gage twice with a bottle and stabbing him with a piece of glass. Police arrested him and charged him with Gage's murder. Hostetler offered a motive for the killing when she said that Lawrence told her that Gage made sexual advances towards him. Hostetler said that Lawrence had gay friends and hung out with gay people and did not have any, quote, violent tendencies. Lawrence may well have had gay friends and hung out with gay people. After all, he met up with Gage at Kings and Queens, a gay bar, that night, and was friendly and comfortable enough with Gage to leave Kings and Queens and accompany him to another bar. However, Hostetler's statement that Lawrence did not have violent tendencies doesn't quite square with his history of intermittent rage disorder, which again is typified by sudden episodes of violent behavior out of proportion to a given situation. Hostetler said that Gage must have made sexual advances and that the incident would never have happened had Lawrence not been drunk. This is not a hate crime, she said. Still, what she and Lawrence describe seems to be a textbook example of the gay panic defense, a legal defense tactic sometimes employed against assault or murder charges. The gay panic defense is rooted in irrational fears based on homophobia and sends a message that violence against LGBT people is both understandable and acceptable. It uses the victim's sexual orientation to explain and excuse a defendant's loss of control and violent action. It allows a defendant to claim that the victim's proposition or nonviolent sexual advance was sufficient to provoke an extreme and even deadly response, and it suggests that a person's sexual orientation makes them more of a threat to safety. The defense allows the defendant to claim that they acted in a state of violent temporary insanity because of unwanted same-sex advances and has sometimes resulted in murder charges being reduced to manslaughter or a lesser offense when the defense succeeds in shifting at least some of the blame to the victim in a violent incident. Only California, Rhode Island, and Illinois have explicitly banned the gay panic defense, 
bans in Connecticut and Nevada will take effect in October 2019. In 2013, the American Bar Association recommended that other states also prohibit the defense. We'll encounter this panic defense as well as trans-panic defense again and again in many other cases covered in this podcast. In this case, it was employed to suggest that Gage's alleged advances and possibly Lawrence's inebriated state were sufficient to spark a deadly confrontation. However, while an autopsy revealed that Gage died from head injuries, his body bore no defense wounds that would indicate he had fended off an attack. Nor did the police find Gage's apartment in disarray, which would have suggested a fight had taken place. When police entered the apartment, they found two glasses out, implying that Gage and Lawrence had been drinking and watching television while waiting for Lawrence's ride. As for Hostetler's statement that Gage's murder was not a hate crime, she may have been technically right. At the time, Iowa did not have a law defining murder based on racial or sexual bias as a hate crime. Murder, regardless of motive, was punishable by life in prison without parole. In Lawrence's case, a law titled Violation of Individual Rights prohibited assaults, vandalism, and trespass for reasons of race, color, religion, ancestry, national origin, political affiliation, sex, sexual orientation, age, or disability. In trial information formally charging Lawrence with murder, the prosecutor included a theory that Lawrence killed Gage while committing the crime of assault in violation of individual rights. Following Gage's death, the Waterloo Human Rights Commission asked the city council to add sexual orientation protections to the city's human rights ordinance. State law allowed municipalities to enact hate crime ordinances. Waterloo Mayor Tim Hurley joined the commission in condemning Gage's murder. In a press conference outside the commission's offices, but said that he had not formed an opinion on the addition of sexual orientation to the city's human rights statute. Gage's friends held candlelight vigils outside his apartment building, and his family and classmates held a memorial outside of the beauty school he attended. Hundreds attended his wake in Olwen, and his funeral drew a crowd too large for the funeral home. Friends and community members also started a scholarship in Gage's name and sold t-shirts and buttons with his image to raise money. Three area churches took up collections for the scholarship fund. 
a benefit to raise money for the scholarship fund at the city convention center attracted numerous attendees. About 400 items were auctioned off. Gage's mother, Bonnie Riccio, commented on the event and the community response to her son's death. Jason all his life was making friends, she said. I didn't realize the imprint on people's lives that he made. A month ago, I didn't know any of these people. Today, everyone's like, oh, hi, Mom. The benefit also drew protesters from the Westboro Baptist Church in Topeka, Kansas. About 20 members of Westboro picketed six area churches and stood outside the convention center carrying signs and shouting that Gage was in hell. A second group joined the Westboro protesters from Consuming Fire Campus Ministries, led by Matt Borgalt. On December 16, 2005, as part of a plea agreement, Joseph Lawrence entered an Alford plea in the case of Jason Gage's murder. The Alford plea allowed Lawrence to avoid admitting guilt while acknowledging that he would likely have been found guilty of Gage's murder had the case gone to trial, as the state had sufficient evidence against him to win a conviction. Initially charged with first-degree murder, which would have carried a sentence of life in prison without parole, Lawrence pleaded guilty to the lesser charge of second-degree murder, which was punishable by up to 50 years in prison. As part of the plea agreement, Lawrence also waived his right to appeal the plea and the sentence and agreed to pay a $150,000 civil penalty to Gage's estate. Upon entering his plea, Lawrence merely said, I have nothing appropriate to say, and sat silently during his sentencing. Gage's older sister, Michelle Gage, told Lawrence he was hiding behind his silence. The reality of the situation is you chose the easy way out, she said. She said that the evil he sowed would return to him threefold and promised that she would attend all of his parole hearings to ask that it be denied. You are a murderer, and you robbed my family of a precious gift, said Michelle Gage, who has become active in gay and lesbian causes since her brother's death. Judge Bruce Zager sentenced Lawrence to 50 years, which was the maximum punishment under Iowa law. Lawrence must serve at least 70%, 35 years, of his sentence before he is eligible for parole. Lawrence will be 58 before he's eligible for parole and 73 when he completes his sentence if he is not paroled.
Only two people know what happened in Jason Gage's apartment the night he was killed. One of them is dead, and the other isn't talking. Lawrence's silence left authorities with a series of facts to determine what happened that fateful night. Lawrence told his girlfriend that Gage made sexual advances toward him. He said to police that he hit Gage with a bottle and stamped him in the neck with a piece of glass. The two arrived separately at the same Waterloo, Iowa bar and went to Gage's apartment when the bar closed. Evidence shows that Lawrence went voluntarily. Two glasses were set out when police entered the apartment, suggesting that the two were drinking and watching television. Gage's apartment showed no evidence of a large-scale fight or confrontation. Gage's body lacked any defensive wounds on his arms or hands that would show he had fought off an attack. The stab wound in his neck suggested that it was inflicted after Gage was already mortally wounded. Lawrence showed no injuries that may have been sustained in a fight when police picked him up three days later. Lawrence did not call for help after assaulting Gage. The facts strongly suggest that there was no fight, as Lawrence claimed. Neither his body nor Gage's bore defensive wounds or injuries to indicate a large-scale fight. The apartment bore no signs of a struggle. Lawrence's claim that Gage made advances toward him could be valid. Gage's friends said he was known for playfully flirting with many of them. Plus, the two had been drinking at two different bars during the evening and appeared to have continued drinking at Gage's apartment. Lowered inhibitions could have led Gage to flirt with Lawrence playfully. Even so, it wouldn't have justified a violent response, let alone murder. As there were no signs of a struggle, it seems unlikely that any serious physical altercation occurred. That Gage was found in his bed and that his body showed no significant defensive wound suggests that he was unaware that an attack was imminent. He took no action to defend himself. It's likely he may even have been passed out or asleep when the attack occurred, and thus no real threat to Lawrence. The most likely scenario seems to be that Gage made advances towards Lawrence, but it didn't spark the kind of violent confrontation Lawrence claimed took place that night. There were no signs of a fight that got out of hand in the apartment or on Gage and Lawrence themselves. At some point, tired and perhaps feeling the effects of drinking, Gage either passed out or fell asleep on his bed, making him even less of a threat. 
Lawrence's reaction may have been delayed by his own drinking that evening and blown out of proportion to the evening's events by his mental condition, leading him to attack a sleeping, defenseless Gage. Whatever happened, Jason Gage should be alive today. He was killed because he was a gay man and that made Joseph Lawrence feel threatened. Thanks for listening to The Hate Crime Files. I'll be back with another episode on the first of the month. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please subscribe, tell your friends and family about it, and consider leaving a positive review at iTunes Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, be careful out there and be good to each other.